Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Great to see each and every one of you today. As uh, most of you know, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the director of Grow and Connect Ministries here at Fellowship Bible Church. And if you're visiting with us today, I just want to add my welcome to Jordan's from earlier. Thank you for being here with us. One of the most uh, challenging things in our society is to walk into a church for the first time surrounded by people that you don't know and wondering how you're going to be received. So uh, if that's you this morning, I hope that you were welcomed and I thank you for being here. And thank you to all of those who are tuning in online as well. Well, uh, you heard the <clears throat> excuse me, you heard the passage read, so if you haven't turned there yet, <clears throat> pardon me, if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn to Je Joshua chapter 2. And I'll get some water and see if I can get past this scratchiness. There we go. In 1957, a man by the name of Eli Cohen was approached by the Israeli spy agency Mossad and recruited to be a spy for them. They wanted him to infiltrate the Syrian government and gather intelligence on Syria's defenses as well as their military uh, strength. The purpose being, of course, that Israel knew that uh, at any moment that they and Syria might find themselves in armed conflict, so they wanted to be prepared for that. Well, Eli Cohen spent years in training uh, to be a spy, as well as to establish his cover as a businessman. And then he moved to Damascus, the capital of Syria, and began befriending influential politicians and military leaders and diplomats. And Cohen was a fabulously successful spy. He, uh, he was really able to draw close to a lot of people that were powerful in the government, and he became so trusted that military officials would actually take him on tours of Syria's defensive fortifications uh, just to show him honor and, and to show him around. And in his most famous exploit, he was uh, with a group of men, with military leaders, touring some facilities in the Golan Heights. And uh, pretending to be appalled by the fact that the soldiers stationed there were left in the sun for hours at a time, Cohen suggested and pleaded with the uh, officials that they would put trees up at each of these fortifications. Now, his reasoning to the Syrians was that the trees, of course, would provide shade for these poor soldiers sitting out in the sun for hours, and that it would provide a bit of camouflage because in the Golan Heights, they were right near Israel, and so that would hide their military fortifications from Israel. Well, the Syrians thought that was a great idea, so they did that. Well, as it turns out, the reason he asked them to put trees there is so that if Israel needed to make an airstrike, the planes would be able to readily pick out where their fortifications were by looking down and and seeing these trees. Unfortunately, uh, the Syrians eventually did discover that Eli Cohen was a spy for the Israelis, and as you might expect, they did execute him. And the reason I, I told that story is to kind of give you a sense for why we enjoy spy stories. You know, there's, uh, there's secrecy, there's deception, there's all this excitement and risk that's going on. But I also wanted to bring to your mind that there's a lot of danger in being a spy. And these two spies that uh, you just heard Jamie read about from Joshua chapter 2 were facing the exact same thing that Eli Cohen was facing. Because if they had been captured and discovered to be spies, they would surely have been put to death as well. And keep in mind as I read through this passage that these men didn't know the end of the story like we do. They didn't know when they left on this mission that they would ever return. They didn't know if they would live to see their families again. Now, before we look at this passage, I do want to uh, remind you of its context. 
You'll recall in Joshua chapter 1 that God told Joshua that it was time to take the land. It was time to lead Israel into the land of promise and fulfill what he has called them to do. And he also assured Joshua that he would be with them. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go, he told him. And strengthened by God's assurance as well as by his direct, direct command, Joshua then told Israel to prepare to enter the land. All right, guys, we've been camped here. God has promised us the land. God is with us. Let's do this. And Israel confidently, confidently responded that they would follow Joshua wherever he led because God was with him as he was with Moses. Today's passage describes the first step to Israel entering the land. Israel is camped on the east side of the Jordan River. I don't know if Megan Ash is in here or not. We were joking about uh, her issues with directions. Uh, so the side that the sun rises on. <laughs> kidding. So they were camped on the east side of the Jordan River, and on the west side of the Jordan River was the promised land. That was the land of promise. So they're just, they, they can see it. It's right in front of them. But they don't just rush across and rush into things. First, Joshua sends these two men on a reconnaissance mission. So we'll start there. The story begins this way. Joshua sends spies to Jericho. And uh, Megan, I did not mean any disrespect, wherever she is. Oh, okay. You're a blessing, sister. This minute. <laughs> Whenever people tell me, do something with your right or your left, I still get that backwards. So, uh, Where am I? So Joshua sends spies to Jericho. Verse 1 says that Joshua sent out two spies and ordered them to view the land, especially Jericho. So where the Israelites were located, from where they were located, the first fortified city they would come across once they entered the land of promise was Jericho. And Jericho was a rather large establishment, several thousand people there. It was a, a city that had a wall around it, uh, a place that was going to be, you know, a people to be reckoned with. So Joshua wanted to know both the lay of the land, and he also wanted to know what Jericho was like. He wanted to know what kind of defenses they had, what kind of military preparations they had made. And his intent, of course, was to plan his military campaign based on the uh, information that the spies discovered. Now, at this point, keep in mind that God has not, at this point, revealed to Joshua his Jericho march strategy. Joshua knows nothing about that. So Joshua just knows he's got to go take this land, so he is doing what any wise military leader would do, and that is first send someone to scout out what they're going to be facing. Usually, even in the Old Testament days, usually God works through natural means. So yes, he can do a miracle anytime he wants. Most of the time, he works through natural means. So Joshua was assuming that that's probably what he would do again. For instance, when, jo when Israel conquered the land east of the Jordan, the land that they were camping on right now, they had to defeat two very powerful kings that you heard mentioned in the passage, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And I'll just throw that out there. If any of you are about to have a son, Og, Youngs, no. <laughs> I guess not. Uh, they had to defeat these two very powerful kings, and when they defeated them, the, book, uh, the Bible says that, that Moses led them to victory over these kings, but they had to do it through natural means. And indeed, God is responsible for their victory, but he did not supernaturally in, uh, intervene in those cases. They had to physically take up their swords and shields and spears and bows and arrows and go out and fight the battle. So Joshua naturally assumes, unless God does otherwise, that's what we're going to have to do here with Jericho. So first, we need to know what we're getting into. It's sort of like uh, nowadays, if you are looking for a job, I don't know if you've ever run across people like this, I have, I've been one of those people actually, 
Uh, you find a believer who's looking for a job, and they think, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just praying God's going to provide me a job. And you ask what they're doing to get a job, and they're like, well, you know, I'm praying that God's going to get me a job. And what they need to do, of course, is fill out a resume and, and fill out applications and make phone calls and that kind of thing. And then when the job does get, when the job is provided, that is indeed glory given to God because he's the one who provides it, but God most of the time works through natural means. So I suppose why I'm circling around this so much is I want you to see why Joshua was even motivated in the first place to send spies. The reason he didn't go, oh, well, that city's going to fall before us, the walls are going to fall down, is because God hadn't revealed that yet, so he's just pursuing a wise course of action, and trusting in God to ultimately give the victory. So Joshua sends out these two spies, and it says that they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. When the spies arrive in Jericho, they go to the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and there are probably a, a couple of good reasons that they went to the house of a prostitute. The main reason, I think, is so that they could uh, draw less attention to themselves. Strangers would be constantly coming and going from Rahab's house, so they figure they can just blend in and stay secret and not attract any attention. Because remember, these are enemies of Jericho, so they know if the people of Jericho find out that we are Israelites and that we're here to spy on them, then we're dead men. So they're trying to do their best to keep a low profile. And also it may be that Rahab was running an inn. We can't be for sure. There are some sources that say this because she did apparently have an extra room or rooms for them to stay in as well as extra provisions for them while they were staying there. And uh, I will add that there's no indication that the spies had any immoral intent or engaged in any immorality <clears throat> Excuse me, with Rahab. Uh, that would just be reading into the lines. I think the uh, spies simply stayed at her house because they wanted a safe place to stay. So the next part of the story tells us that the spies encountered danger and deliverance in Jericho. Somehow, the people in Jericho figured out, indeed, that these two men were Israelites. Now, I would assume that they dressed in a manner similar to what the Jerichoites would dress like. So my thinking is either their speech or just their manner of, of uh, behavior signaled the, uh, the Jericho people, the people of Jericho, that these were Israelites. However it happened, <clears throat> excuse me, however it happened, it's clear that these two guys were not very good spies. Remember, they didn't have the uh, years of training that Eli Cohen did. They just had Joshua say, hey, go, go spy on these people for me. <clears throat> so since they were Israelites and the people of Jericho knew this, they logically concluded that their only reason for being here is to spy on us in preparation for an attack that we know is coming. So verse 2 says, it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So the word of these Israelites being in town spread pretty quickly all the way up to the king himself. It appears from the way this is stated that they were recognized as Israelite spies the very day they arrived. It, it, I kind of feel like when uh, my senior year of high school, we got to go to Washington, D.C., and for some reason, everywhere we went, people would say, are you guys from Texas? I'm like, well, how, did, how did you know that? How can you tell? So these guys apparently just stuck out like a sore thumb, and they were, they were found out immediately, and uh, the king was told. So the king then sends his men to Rahab's house to pick them up, obviously with the intent to interrogate and kill them. So they tell Rahab, they go to Rahab's house, and they tell her, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Rahab, you have two guys staying at your house that are actually spies. Not only you don't know this, but turn them over to us, and we'll take care of them. And here we begin to see God's sovereignty displayed in this little story. 
He has already worked on the heart of this pagan prostitute. Instead of turning the spies over to the king, Rahab chooses to betray the king as well as her people. Verse 4 says, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Rahab had already discerned that they were recognized as Israelite spies, and somehow she found out that the king was going to send men to get them. So before they arrived, Rahab hid the spies just in case the king's men didn't believe her story and decided to search the place. Now think about what happened to get to this point. Out of all the houses in Jericho, and remember this is a city of thousands of people, out of all the houses in Jericho, God providentially led them to the house of the one woman in Jericho who would protect them. The one woman in Jericho who had decided to believe in the one true God and would therefore risk her own life to see that they were saved. Rahab tells the king's men that she didn't know where the men staying were, excuse me, she tells them, the king's men, that she didn't know where these men were from. So she does feign innocence here. And then she says, they've already left the city. I mean, they, they shot out of here because they wanted to get out before the gate was closed. And then in order to kind of move them along quickly, she says, well, look, if you guys hurry, you'll probably be able to catch up with them. And in another sign of God's providence, these king's men believed her. They didn't say, well, half of us will go after them, half of them will search your house. They all believed her, and they took off after the men and ran out of the city. And it says that the men went toward the fords of the Jordan River. Now, the, the fords would be the places of the river where it's narrower and shallower, so the most logical place for a person to cross, and that's why they went to that area. This uh, incident... Reminds me, actually, of the family of Corrie ten Boom. I think most of you are probably familiar with her story. She was a, a Dutch woman, or, uh, and uh, during World War II, her family hid Jews from the Nazis. And whenever they would be questioned by the police, the secret police, the Gestapo, they would lie and say, no, we're, we're, not, we're not hiding any Nazis. One of the lessons I think that the, this story with Rahab gives us is that God is more concerned with why we do something than with what we do. The heart motive behind your action is more important than the action itself. Rahab did lie, but her motive was to save the lives of these Israelite spies. I'm also reminded of a time in the book of Exodus when the Israelites were still under the slavery of the Egyptians. The Egyptian pharaoh noticed that the Israelites were growing in number, getting very numerous, and so he was threatened by that. So he instructed the women who worked as midwives to kill any male children that were born to the Hebrew women. And these midwives didn't do that. They, they kept the babies alive, and then they lied to the Pharaoh about what they had done. And they did it, of course, to save the lives of these babies. So what do we do with these examples? Two examples right here in Scripture, and then uh, Corey ten Boom being a more recent uh, modern one. What do we do with these examples of people who tell a straight-up lie, there's no denying it, but they're doing it in order to save someone? I mean, is it, is it okay to lie if we have a good reason? Or, or is it okay to lie if it's really important? Or let's just put it in the highest category. Is it okay to lie? Is the one possible time it's okay to lie when it is going to save someone's life? Well, if you come to that conclusion, and, and a number of Christians through the years have, that, it, that lying is justified when you're saving someone's life, I don't think it's necessarily a terrible conclusion, but I, I would still say that it cannot possibly be right to disobey God in an attempt to obey him in some other area. 
telling the truth, even in Rahab's case, and trusting God to handle the situation would have been the best thing to do. Obviously, Rahab was born and raised a pagan, so you wouldn't have expected her to have thought this through uh, theologically. But uh, I love the way that John Calvin comments on this episode. He said, as to Rahab's falsehood, we must admit that though it was done for a good purpose, it was not free from fault. For those who hold what is called a dutiful lie do not sufficiently consider how precious truth is in the sight of God. And I love this statement here. It never can be lawful to lie because that cannot be right, which is contrary to the nature of God. And God is truth. However, Calvin ends his comment this way, and still the act of Rahab is not devoid of the praise of virtue, even though it was not spotlessly pure. So I think we can step back and say, okay, yes, it wasn't right for her to lie, but what she did was still a good thing, and God used it to save these spies. Uh, I suppose what I want you guys to take away from this is don't go out and think that because a situation is important in your mind, that therefore you're justified in lying about it. So the story then jumps back in time just a little. Before the king's men had arrived, when uh, Rahab was hiding the spies under the flax on the roof, Rahab confesses her faith in God and asks for deliverance. This woman who was born and raised in an idolatrous society, a society of people who worshipped false gods, makes an absolutely beautiful confession about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11 to you again because it's just, just fantastic. It says this, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab's statements about God are so accurate and powerful. One author called this the rooftop revival of the book of Joshua. Just look at some of the marvelous truths she states. First, she said that she knew that the Lord had given Israel the land. And you'll notice in your Bibles that the word Lord is in small caps, meaning that is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. I know that Yahweh has given Israel the land. There may have been many other people in Jericho who also believed that Israel's God had promised them the land, but Rahab is stating with full faith and confidence, the Lord, Yahweh, has given you the land. I am sure of it. In fact, she's willing to stake her life on it because, as I mentioned before, she surely would have been killed if her help of the spies had been discovered. Then she says that the people of Jericho and the rest of the people of Canaan are fearful of Israel. The fear of you has fallen upon us. Now what she's saying there is actually a confirmation for these spies of a promise that God had given back in Deuteronomy chapter 2 when he said, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And why were they afraid? Why were their hearts melting? Why were they in such dread? Rahab said it was because they had heard. Because they had heard of the mighty works that God had done. She mentions the parting of the Red Sea and the defeat of Sihon and Og. The Red Sea parting, keep in mind at this point, is over 40 years ago when they were first exiting Egypt. But apparently it was witnessed by many other people and word about it spread throughout Canaan. 
And the people of Canaan, even 40 years ago, had not forgotten about it. The God of Israel commanded the sea itself to make a way for his people. This God is powerful. This God acts. The power displayed in that miracle terrified the people of Canaan. And as I mentioned, 40 years later, they still hadn't forgotten. And God showed his power again in giving victory to Israel over these two strong kings. And they didn't just defeat these two kings. They absolutely obliterated them and their armies and their peoples. Since God could do this, reasoned the people of Jericho, he could command the forces of nature, he could give victory in battle, we should be absolutely petrified of facing Israel in an armed conflict because their God is powerful. And in verse 11, Rahab reaches the absolute pinnacle of her faith. Listen to this. As soon as we heard it, she said, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now pay close attention to this part. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab had become a believer in the one true God. As one writer put it, her use of the covenant name Yahweh showed that Rahab knew the name of God. She knew that God was not Baal. She knew that God was not Anat, that God was not Chemosh or any of the other Canaanite gods. But God, the true God over the heavens and the earth, was none other than Yahweh Elohim, who was proclaimed by the people of Israel. The fact that God, <clears throat> excuse me, the God that Israel proclaims, says Rahab, is the God of everything. As you know, most pagan gods have parts of creation or parts of life to which they are assigned. The god of storms, the god of the harvest, the god of the sunrise, the god of dark, whatever. Rahab is realizing that this god is god over absolutely everything. He is the one true god. The fellow, her fellow citizens of Jericho heard the same report that Rahab did. They experienced the same fear that Rahab did. But only Rahab responded to that fear by confessing the Lord God of Israel to be the God of all. Rahab demonstrated faith in the Lord God of Israel by protecting the spies. Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. In James 2, Rahab is used as an example of someone whose sincere faith is made evident by her actions, her works. James says that she was justified by her work. She wasn't saved by them, but her faith was made evident by what she had done. Rahab is a powerful example of the sovereign mercy of our God. Praise God for showing mercy to this pagan prostitute, for opening her eyes to the truth and opening her heart to believe. And may we praise God for showing mercy to you and me as well. You may think that you and I don't need a savior as much as Rahab did, but the Bible says that no one is righteous and that all fall short of the glory of God. Anglican Bishop H.C.G. Mole said this about everyone falling short of God's glory. The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. You may live a better life than a lot of the people around you, but you don't live a perfect life. You cannot possibly live up to God's standard. And like all mankind, you stand condemned, born an enemy of God and living in disobedience. But just like Rahab, if you turn to the Lord, you will be saved and made a part of his people. Like Rahab, you and I deserve to be destroyed along with the rest of God's enemies. But like Rahab, we can experience his love and mercy instead if we will respond to his revelation in faith. 
Author Rhett Dodson points out that Rahab's confession is also a confirmation of God's covenant with Abraham. The guarantee that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That promise finds its final fulfillment, of course, in Christ, who brings the Gentiles to faith. But in Rahab's conversion, we see a kind of first fruits of that fulfillment. Now you and I are living and enjoying the full harvest of that beautiful promise being fulfilled. And one more note on the grace that God showed Abraham. As you probably know, in the book of Matthew, we discover that Rahab was actually blessed to be one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ himself. She is in his direct lineage. After confessing her belief in God, Rahab asks the spies to save her and her family from their destruction that she knows is coming on Jericho. She says, Swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save us alive. So the spies agree to that, and they give her instructions to make sure that her and her family will be saved. For one thing, they need to stay inside their house while this battle, when the battle begins, before the battle begins and during the battle's uh, duration. And the spies swear by their own lives. They say, "Our, our lives for yours. Okay, we give you our word. May we be destroyed if we do not hold up our end of this bargain. And then to ensure that the people of Israel know which house to leave alone when they do eventually attack Jericho, They instruct her to leave this scarlet cord in her window. Since Rahab's house is built on the outer wall of the city, the Israelite army would easily be able to recognize which house is hers as they approach the city. So after getting their agreement to help, Rahab helps the spies escape the city by letting them down a rope through the window. Since it was built on the wall, and the the Bible is clear to, to highlight that, since her house was built on a wall, she could get the spies out of the city without them having to go through the city gate, which had been closed by this time. And the location of Rahab's house is another example of God's sovereign control of this whole situation. Not only did the spies unknowingly stay at the house of the one person in Jericho who had turned in faith to the true God, but the one person in Jericho who had turned in faith to the one true God happened to have a house that was located on a wall so that they could easily escape from danger. So the Jericho mission was wrapped up, and the spies returned to Joshua. Can you imagine their excitement as they're walking back, running back, skipping back? As they're returning to Joshua and the people of Israel, man, just just imagine how their hearts are filled with the, the readiness to tell the rest of the people, man, this is what happened. Look at what God did for us. So they get to Joshua, and the scripture says that they told him all that had happened to them, and they wrap up their report this way. Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Joshua, we're more confident than ever that God is going to fulfill this promise. We know that we'll possess this land because God showed us that he's put the fear of us into the hearts of the people of Canaan. He showed us that he's in control of every situation we face. The Lord has given all the land into our hands. You'll remember back in the book of Numbers when Moses first led the people near the promised land. He also sent spies into the promised land to scope it out. He sent one from each tribe, which meant 12 spies. And as you know, when those spies returned, 10 of them were absolutely dismayed. No way we can take this land. These people are giants. We're like grasshoppers. We do not stand a chance. And out of that group of 12, there were only two spies who came back saying, yeah, these people are big, but, but God's bigger. We've got this. He's going he's gonna to give us the land. 
One of those two people, of course, being the man who was leading the land, excuse me, the people of Israel at this time, Joshua himself. So in that incident in Numbers, because those ten men came back so disheartened that pessimism spread throughout the people of Israel, and they told Moses, we can't do this. And one result of that, of course, was that they then wandered for 40 years through the desert. This time, these two spies come back enthusiastic, certain, confirmed in their faith that God is going to give them their land. And I'm sure that their enthusiasm rubbed off on the rest of the people of Israel and caused them to just be ready and willing to move into what God was calling them to. Seeing the hand of God in their lives intensified their faith in the Lord. Now, you and I may not see the blatant evidence that these two spies saw. We probably don't have miraculous escapes daily anyway. But if you look, you will see evidence of the hand of God in your life. If you're a believer, then the triune God is living in you and working through you and working for you. So look for examples of God's providence. Look for those times when you were in just the right place or you met just the right person or you or someone else said just the right thing. And then give God praise and glory for that. Let that strengthen your faith that God is on your side and he will fulfill his promise and he will save you. Be encouraged. <clears throat> Be encouraged in your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be strengthened to believe his promise that he is with you to the end of the age. Be strengthened to believe him when he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened to believe that you have an unfading inheritance kept for you in heaven. And be strengthened to believe that at the end of this life, you will face eternity without shame or pain or suffering or sin. The thought that encapsulated this passage for me is this. The Lord fulfills his promises and saves everyone who trusts in him. God confirmed to the spies and the rest of Israel that he is able and willing to act on their behalf to give them victory over the Canaanites. He gave their hearts and minds further confirmation that he had given them the land and what enabled them to possess it. And God showed all of us that God will save everyone who comes to him, even someone as unlikely as Rahab, even that person that you think is beyond the reach of the grace of God. In fact, maybe somebody in here this morning or someone watching online may think that. You can't imagine what I've done. You can't imagine the bridges I've burned. You can't imagine the sins that I've committed. God wouldn't receive me. There's no way God could forgive me after what I've done. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ said, if anyone comes to him, he will never cast them out. Jesus Christ said that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus said that he would give rest to everyone who comes to him, all who are labor and are heavily laden. If you don't know the Lord, I urge you this morning to call out to him. Tell him that you are a sinner, that you're lost, that you're condemned, that you, you need his salvation. And Christ will not push you away. He'll receive you with open arms. He will wash you, cleanse you, adopt you, accept you, and take you into his family forever. The Lord fulfills his promises and saves everyone who trusts in him. If you're a believer this morning and you're drowning in shame, maybe because of a sin that just seems to absolutely own you, you cannot seem to get past. And so every day and every week, you come before the Lord thinking, there is no way the Lord can receive me. There is no way the Lord can restore me. The Lord must be looking at me with such anger and hatred. I'm here to tell you, 
that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Lord loves you. He wants you to know that, he is, that you are his child, and he always accepts you. Confess your sin to him and receive his cleansing and forgiveness. He promises to give it. He promises to restore, and he promises never to reject or, re, re, excuse me, reject or abandon you. The Lord fulfills his promises and saves everyone who trusts in him. There are a few other ways that I've listed on screen as well as in your bulletin of how you could respond to this word from the Lord. I think one of the most important is to give God praise for showing you mercy. I mean, we look at the stories often in the New Te- excuse me, in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, and we'll look for ourselves, rightfully, right? Because they're people just like we're people, we'll look for ourselves. But our tendency very often is to look for ourselves in the hero of the story. But you and I, we're not the spies. We're like Rahab, lost, absolutely deserving to be destroyed, and then God graciously revealing himself and calling us to be his children and then receiving his mercy and deliverance. So take time today to express your thanks to him for that. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, for revealing yourself to me. Thank you for adopting me and loving me and never giving up on me. Another idea would be to choose an area of your life where you doubt the Lord and find a promise that addresses that doubt. The reason I mentioned that when I, I think part of the reason that God did what he did in Jericho was to fight against the doubts that were probably welling up within the people of Israel because now they're about to step into the battle. Now they're about to step into the fray. And so surely there were doubts in their minds. Well, God did say he promised, but can we really trust him? And one more time, out of his mercy, God says, yes, let me give you yet another confirmation that you can trust me. <clears throat> and finally, I'll just suggest this. Tell someone about one of God's mighty works. Saving Noah and his family, parting the Red Sea before Israel, Jesus feeding thousands with five loaves and two fish, and on and on and on. Because hearing about the mighty works of God sparks faith in our hearts. If you're talking to a believer, they're going to be encouraged as they brought to mind once again how great and awesome our God is. And if you're talking to an unbeliever, God can use that to drive them closer to Christ, just as he did with Rahab. Stand with me as we close in prayer. <clears throat> the Lord fulfills his promises and he will save everyone who trusts in him. Let's give him praise for that. Gracious God, thank you for your mercy. Lord, thank you for your mercy on Rahab, and thank you for your mercy on me, and thank you for your mercy on all my brothers and sisters in Christ. We deserve your wrath, Lord, but in your mercy you gave us the glorious grace of your Son. His blood was poured out that we might live. Thank you, God, for that. I pray that you would strengthen the faith of all your saints this morning. I pray that you would help us to reset ourselves, knowing that we can rest in your love, regardless of where we are right now, Lord, regardless of where we're screwing up, messing up, and falling short. We can rest in your love, Heavenly Father. God, I also pray that you would use us to proclaim your greatness to the world around us. Use us to tell others that there is a balm in Gilead. There is a place of rest. There is hope and there is salvation in this dark world. And it is found in Christ Jesus. Lord God, I pray for a special measure of grace on your people. May our hearts be filled with joy as we go about our week. In your holy name, amen.